Good evening. Thank you for tuning in. I want to start this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. What does Paul mean by this? Well, this passage is a favorite of youth ministers and parents of teenagers. Don't go to parties. Don't go to bars. Don't hang out with bad kids because you'll become bad yourself. Is that what Paul was referring to here? Not exactly. You know, although we might could use this as a proverb to talk and preach to our kids about not associating with bad folks, the point of Paul's writing has to do with the resurrection. That is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and certainly verse 33 fits that theme. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, the gospel is at the heart of Paul's writing here. It sets the stage. He's talking about the gospel and our response to it and the resurrection fitting into that theme as well. Now skip down to verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now apparently there were some in Paul's day who, who denied a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection for the dead. And apparently these deniers didn't comprehend that their denial was in direct contradiction of Scripture and the very gospel that they had obeyed. And Paul makes the point that if the resurrection didn't occur for Jesus, if it's not going to occur for us, then our faith is worthless, right? You mean God's going to put people back together again and they're going to walk out of the graves? That had to be what the people were thinking, at least these deniers. And Paul's saying, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And not only that, your faith hinges on this. Your faith hinges on the fact that someday you will walk out of the tomb the way Jesus did. So we're not going to be floating around on clouds playing harps. No, we're going to be resurrected. Now, Paul says that this has everything to do with our faith. This is the linchpin of our faith. And then Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, be deceived by what? Well, what's the context? The resurrection, right? So don't be deceived about there not being a resurrection from the dead. Bad company corrupts good morals. What company is Paul talking about? Well, again, in context, he's talking about keeping company with people who say that there is no resurrection. He's not talking about people who drink or cuss or hang out in bars. He's not talking about hanging out with people who have bad morals. He's talking about hanging out with people who have bad theology. But why would a bad doctrine ruin someone's morals? Look at verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, if this life is all that there is, if there is no resurrection, well then just eat, drink, and be merry. You're going to become worm dirt and nothing more. In other words, you will ruin your morality if you accept such a doctrine, Paul says. And he says that he was willing to fight wild beasts in Ephesus because he believed so strongly in the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. Don't listen to people who deny the resurrection because it will ruin your morality, Paul says. That is the true context of verse 33. Bad company is bad doctrinal company. And how do you reach this conclusion? By considering the entire scope of the text. 
In real estate, they say the key is location, location, location. When it comes to Bible study, the key is context, context, context. Considering the major theme and the context of what is being considered is crucial if we're going to move from observation to proper interpretation and thus application. Now, you may have heard the fancy word hermeneutics at some point. It's just a way of saying how we interpret the Bible. And there are certain models, hermeneutic models, that have been employed uh, for many years. Some of them are rather new. One of them is CENI, C-E-N-I. And this is the one that we're probably most familiar with. The C uh, stands for command, the E, example, and the N-I for necessary inference. Now, this is an approach that is mostly used by, you know, Churches of Christ uh, members. It's the most familiar probably to all of you. However, CINI does have some flaws, and we have to admit that. All of them do, and we have to admit that as well. All hermeneutic models fall short in some area, but CINI is still a good model. However, the flaws are that it can be inconsistent at times, at least in the way that we apply it. Sometimes it can be confusing. Inferences, for instance, are rather debatable. They're not binding, so those cause a problem sometimes. And this also breeds proof texting, unfortunately. There's another hermeneutic model that F. Lagarde Smith introduced. I believe it was in his book, The Cultural Church, and I like it. It talks about purpose, principle, and precedent. Purpose uh, just asks the question, what is the purpose of the passage that is under consideration? It asks questions like who, what, where, why, and when. So as you're reading through the text, you ask those questions. The principal part of things asks the question, um, what is the intent? What should I gain from this that applies to me in this day and time? When we only focus on the command, we, we can miss the intent, right? Precedent is the third, and this is the question of do we have an example? Do we have an example that should be considered authoritative more specifically? But then you have this, this rather new model that I saw not long ago that was um, uh, devised by Hayes and Duvall, and it's called the interpretive journey. And the interpretive journey has some steps like the first one, grasp the text in their hometown. In other words, what did the text mean to the original audience? And then you have the crossing of the river of culture. What are the differences between the original audience and us? Then Hayes and Duvall say, we need a bridge. What is the principle? And then consult the biblical map. How does the theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? And then we are to grasp the text in our town. What does the principle mean for me living in this day and age? And so those are just a few of the hermeneutic models uh, that, that are out there. There are others, but these seem to be the most uh, accurate, even though all of them have flaws. But which one do we use? What hermeneutic is best? Well, I, I think that we must recognize that none of them are perfect, but also I personally use a hybrid approach. While I think CINI still has some real value, it does have some problems. I like the purpose, principle, and precedent method. I think it's a fresh way of looking at the commands, and I think it simplifies application. But I'm also intrigued by Hayes and Duvall and what they have done with the interpretive journey. But the truth of the matter is all of these kind of bleed over into one another. There is an overlap in all of them. And so when it comes to a hermeneutic model, we are trying to employ something that gets us to the point where we can grasp the text 
and make the application for us. And there is, uh, there is some danger when we do this. There are some pitfalls that we need to try to avoid, some things that we need to keep in mind no matter what hermeneutic model we are using. And the very first thing we need to keep in mind is that we are to be a truth seeker. So we start with God. We start with His truth, not with our traditions or my truth or, or someone else's truth. Understand, this is God speaking. So we have the mindset that I'm going to Scripture to see what God has to say rather than going to Scripture to prove what I already believe. Be willing to change as well. Let Scripture trouble you. You may discover that something you've always believed just isn't true. You may discover that something you've always been taught, maybe even by your parents, isn't true. Be willing to change. Be willing to do something about the wrong you confront because you're a truth seeker ultimately. You want to know what God has to say, even if that means changing your life to some respect. Also consider the context. And I cannot stress this one enough. We've already talked about it, but our interpretive approach should properly take into account the way God chose to communicate the Scriptures in the first place. It is vitally important to keep in mind that each portion of Scripture was God's Word to someone else before it was God's Word to us. We cannot leave the original audience and the circumstances surrounding the original text out of the equation. This has a major bearing on interpretation because the true meaning of a passage is what God intended it to mean to the people it was first written to. Therefore, we have to determine first what is meant to those who received it first and then what it means to us. Historical cultural context is a mouthful, but that is, a, that is uh, having to do with the writer, the readers, the circumstances, whether social, political, religious, or whatever, that prompted the writing. And a key to considering context is considering all these things and reading bigger chunks. Third thing is keep the big picture in mind. We know how this story ends. And so with every piece of scripture you read, read it with the end in mind. Read it with the resurrection on your heart and read it with the bigger narrative of Scripture in mind as well. Consider the story as a whole. Consider how the passage you're reading fits that bigger narrative and that story. So when you're reading Song of Solomon, for instance, consider the bigger story. When you're reading the book of Ruth, consider the bigger story. We tend to read the Bible in pieces. Try to read bigger chunks. And make the pieces fit. Those chunks need to fit the bigger narrative. Remember that this all fits together to form the bigger story. And also I would say don't get lost in the weeds. I think all too often we get to chasing rabbits and we get off course. It ultimately doesn't matter if it was a whale or some other fish that swallowed Noah. Or excuse me, Jonah. Stick with the, the whole point of the message. Understand what God is conveying through the story of Jonah. What's the point of it? Don't get lost in the weeds. Also say, remember that God is speaking. When God is speaking, we need to be all ears. Set aside your opinions, your prejudices, your inferences, and pay attention to what God is saying. Always ask the question, what is God wanting me to hear? Read Scripture as you're hearing the voice of God. Also remember that Jesus is the standard. You're not reading in an effort to prove that you're right. You're not studying so that you can prove that someone else is wrong. 
You're studying the heart of God. You're seeking His truth, His will for your life. Jesus was always about the Father's business. And therefore, it just makes sense that if we follow Jesus, we will do the things that please the Father. So don't make this all about just crossing every T and dotting every I. God is not some ruthless taskmaster hoping to catch you breaking the law so that he can zap you. God is a father who wants what's best for his children. And look to Jesus as the example. The first church wasn't trying to be the first church. You can read through Acts and the epistles and you can find Not an emphasis on following all the rules, but rather an emphasis on being like Jesus and living out the gospel. Because if you do that, the rules take care of themselves, right? You will do what you are supposed to do when you love the Lord your God with all of your being and you love your neighbor as yourself. And I would say this, be humble. You don't know it all and God doesn't expect you to. We should all be seeking to grow in our knowledge and our discipleship But no one is an expert on all biblical things. You've heard me say it before. When it comes to a difficult passage, I'm honest with with you folks. I, I say something like, this is what I believe today. I reserve the right to change my mind. We should all have that attitude. The know it alls are almost always the ones who want to beat people over the head with the Bible. But we don't know it all. We'll never know it all. Don't try to win an argument, try to win a soul. Be able to say, I'm sorry, but I I, I don't know. I'll go back and try to figure it out. You don't have to know everything. Sad thing is, most know-it-alls don't know near as much as they think they do. So seek to know as much as you can about God by studying His Word and understand that His knowledge was not intended to be a means by which we can cut others down. This knowledge is meant to make us more like Jesus. You know, Jesus often emphasized relationship over ritual. If you look at Matthew 12, starting in verse 1, it reads, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. We see this theme over and over again, Jesus emphasizing relationship over ritual. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizing relationship and not the rote mechanical adherence to the law. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks to the religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites as he talks about how they have neglected the weightier matters of the law. It's not that ritual is unimportant. The old law was meant to be obeyed. However, ritual is is a man thing. It's it's made for humanity, not the other way around. You obey because you love the one you're in relationship with. As I've said before, rules only modify behavior. That's all they do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's the impetus. That's the catalyst is love. The foremost commands given by our Lord was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, the rules will take care of themselves. But don't read the Bible like it's some legal document. Read it with the bigger story in mind. 
Let me ask you something. How many of you watch a movie, and when you sit down to watch this movie, you watch it in like five to ten minute increments? You're constantly stopping and starting it. No one really likes to do that, right? Doesn't it kind of frustrate you when you sit down to watch a movie and you have to pause it every so often because someone has to get up and get something or go to the restroom? We don't watch a movie like that. We want to watch it all the way through from beginning to end because that's what makes the most sense is, is the flow. We want to get the flow and, of the movie. And, and so often people read the Bible in short bite-sized installments, in small increments, and they don't get the whole flow. It's kind of like reading a, uh, reading a book or watching a movie. You want, to, you want to get involved in the story. You want to get immersed in it, and you want to follow it through, right? So another key to properly reading and understanding Scripture is to let it flow. You know, we could, we could uh, be here tonight, and, and I could stand up here, uh, and I could read all of 1 Peter. And my guess is you would have a different understanding or perspective of 1 Peter than maybe you ever have. If I stood up here and just read it in its entirety and you just listened or followed along, you'd probably have a different uh, grasp of the text because you heard it all in one sitting. There is a flow. And there's a flow to this story that we need to keep in mind and that we need to immerse ourselves in. Here's something else. Everything we read in Scripture must be filtered through the lens of the cross. Everything must be interpreted through that lens, especially what we read in the New Testament. It must be interpreted through the cross. What does it look like to follow Jesus? That is a key question when it comes to studying and applying the Scriptures. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this will he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So what's the message here that Paul is conveying? If you're a husband, serve your wife like Jesus. If you're a wife, serve your husband like Jesus. If you're a kid, serve your parents like Jesus. If you're a parent, serve your kids like Jesus. And if you're a bondservant, serve your master like you're serving Jesus. And if you're a master, serve your bondservant like you're serving Jesus. You think about how all of the New Testament scriptures really relate back to this, right? You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have all the one another passages that Paul talks about. You have Peter talking about how to handle persecution. And we could go on, but I think you get the idea. Over and over again, the theme is to be like Jesus. The Bible is a manual for disciples. It's not merely a rule book. It's not a proof text for our beliefs and our biases and our prejudices. It's not a reference book. It's not just a self-help book, and it's certainly not Siri. It's a portrait of what a disciple should look like. And so we read it through that lens. If you go to Scripture with the intent of being more like Jesus, 
with the intent of being transformed, with the intent of thinking and, and, and talking and acting like Jesus. If you go to Scripture with that intent, then you can't help but win. Listen, all Christian Bible study should be about learning to be like Jesus. That's the goal. When you sit down to study Scripture, pray this prayer, God, make me more like Jesus. Because that is always the goal. Too many times we sit down to study the Bible so that we can gain ammunition. We read with the intent of finding something that I can use to support my argument when I'm arguing with someone else. If we're only going to Scripture to find ammunition, ammunition, then we're doing it wrong. You know, many, many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, in a church kind of similar to this one, I, I had someone who, who took issue with something I said from the pulpit. In fact, uh, this gentleman all, often took issue with what I said from week to week, and and he would go back and he would study his Bible and he would come back to me with, uh, with his ammunition. And, you know, I, I really don't mind that too much. I mean, after a while, it grates on you. But if I'm saying something wrong, I want to know. Obviously, I want to do this the right way. And so if I'm saying something that's untrue or not biblical, please let me know, right? But sometimes this gentleman would get rather angry when I would push back on his reasoning. And I finally asked him, in all that time of studying to try to prove me wrong or to crush me with the scriptures, did you ever consider how Jesus would act in such a situation? Because you see, if, if the goal is, I'm going to find where Chris messed up, well, I mean, that won't be hard. I mess up a lot. You'll find something. But that's not a worthy goal either. The Bible is not meant to be read so that we can gain ammunition or so that we can use it as a proof-texting tool to prove someone else wrong. This isn't about winning an argument. It's about winning a soul. And here's an, another unworthy goal. Studying Scripture to medicate ourselves. Yes, there can be great good found in Scripture that can help us and to, to relieve us and maybe soothe our soul. But we shouldn't read the Bible just devotionally or inspirationally, picking out verses that just make us feel good. That's a side effect, but it should never be the goal. It's an additional benefit to Bible study, but it's not the goal of Bible study. You know what the goal is? The goal is to bring us closer to the Heavenly Father. The goal is to be more like Jesus. So let's read Scripture in that light.